Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Libertarian Institute has a piece entitled Dutch Prime Minister Says NATO Using Ukraine as Proxy Against Russia. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root has called to equip Ukrainian forces with enough weapons and gear to defeat the Russian military, arguing that Kyiv must deal the blows as direct confrontation between NATO and Moscow is still off the table. What does this really signal? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. So, Root says, in terms of weaponry, we stand united here that it is crucial for Russia to lose the war, suggesting that Ukraine should serve as a conduit for Western arms in order to maximize pain inflicted on Moscow. And as we cannot have a direct confrontation between NATO troops and Russia, what we need to do is make sure that Ukraine can fight that war, that it has access to all the necessary weaponry. Well, this race says to me that NATO and the U.S., as we've said before, are all in until the last Ukrainian dies. But here's my question. This idea that it's crucial for Russia to lose the war, where does that come from? And why is that mindset so prevalent? It's really hard to uh, explain a uh, naive statement such as the one that Ruth just made. Um, Why Russia must lose the war? Well, you know, Russia's not going to lose the war. Uh, Russia, for good or ill, is uh, now conquering the part of Ukraine that they had intended to conquer all along. They have proceeded on their twin aim of denazification and demilitarization. The only question in my mind is when they will stop. And that's where politicians like Bruce come in. Uh, If there's an endless supply of weaponry from the West, if the West continues to aid and abet Zelensky in his quixotic attempt to, quote, win, end quote, this war, then I think the Russians would be tempted to go all the way to Odessa. If there can be some common sense inflicted here, then I think the Russians would stop pretty much where they are now. Uh, The Dnieper River would would constitute a ceasefire line pretty much. And uh, there could be sensible talks so that the last Ukrainian wouldn't die because of our belligerency. When I say our belligerency, that's pretty much what exists now. And when you have people like NATO spokespeople and NATO uh, prime ministers and presidents, saying that we have to make sure that maximum pain is inflicted on Moscow. Well, that ain't going to happen short of a high risk 
of nuclear war. Uh, I don't think that's what root means. And so what we have to say is that this is either naivete or uh, just plain ignorance. Ray, here's what I think, you know, to to get into the real world. I think the end of this um, uh, conflict only comes a couple ways. One of them is that Russia achieves its military goals and says, "Okay, we're done. We got everything we want and we're going to keep what land we took. I think that's a very real possibility. The other, of course, is some diplomatic political agreement, um, uh, you know, between the U.S. and the powers that be in Russia, which I don't see as a good possibility for a number of reasons that I go on and on about. But here's the other part. At some point, I think we're more likely to see a political collapse of some type or and or military collapse in Ukraine, that at some point, the level of losses, the level of pain that they're taking that will cause either some kind of a coup or some kind of a military, the military to collapse and say, look, we can't send any more people. Our people won't go. Won't go. They're just rebelling. This thing is falling apart. Um, what do you think about my the, about the possibility of some kind of a collapse or coup in the Ukrainian government or Ukrainian military where the U.S. doesn't have any really control over that thing that falls apart? At any rate, your thoughts on that, Ray? Well, so far, the U.S. does have partial control over Zelensky. Uh, when I say partial control, uh, the rest of the control comes from the Nazi elements that were put in place after the U.S.-sponsored coup in Kiev on the 22nd of February 2014. So if you want to be sympathetic, you say Zelensky is between a rock and a hard place, the rock being the U.S., the hard place being the Nazis. He can't. He's not his own man. And so the question will be, uh, will be this. Uh, Russia, as I think we have established, considers Ukraine to be a, uh, a, a threat, an existential threat to Russian national security. All that needs to happen is offensive strike missiles, or what the Russians call them, going into Ukraine, and you have a completely new situation, they would be taken out very quickly. Is it an existential threat to Biden? Well, yeah, it is. Uh, Biden thinks in political terms. The midterm elections are coming up in November. He has to appear really, really strong. So yesterday he gave another billion point two dollars to, to Zelensky. Tomorrow maybe it'll be a billion point three of our tax dollars to Zelensky. So he's under pressure to do something that's really quixotic. Zelensky's not going to win. Uh, they are losing, by one estimate, a thousand troops a day out there in the Donbass. So where's the hope? Well, the hope is that meanwhile, Europeans are suffering greatly from these sanctions that Biden calls Putin sanctions, <laughs> but Europeans are beginning to call Biden sanctions. What do we mean? Well, the, the leaders of France. Germany and Italy are talking with Zelensky today. They probably have finished their discussions given the time this difference. So what, what are they saying to Zelensky? Fight on and we'll give you lots more weapons. Fight on. 
I don't know anymore. I hope not, for God's sake. Uh, because if they do, it's it's really just going to creep up and, and destroy the rest of Ukraine. So maybe, just maybe, they insisted on this meeting to say, look, you know, the game's really up. Russia has achieved most of its objectives. Isn't it time to talk? I hope that's what comes out of this, uh, but I'm not sure. And I certainly wouldn't bet a lot of money on it. To your earlier statement, Biden announces $1 billion weapons package for Ukraine. He announced this yesterday after a call with Zelensky that the largest single arms shipment will be provided since uh, Russia intervened in February. Uh, Also, the United States is giving Ukraine an additional $225 million in humanitarian assistance. All of this while People in the United States are having to decide, do they fill up their gas? Do they fill up their cars or fill up their stomachs? But also, the White House has almost zero ability to track the weapons it's sending. So really, Ray, what we have here is a boondoggle for Raytheon and a boondoggle for the other arms manufacturers, and we are sowing the seeds for these weapons to fall into the wrong hands so that for many years to come, other battles can be fought, commercial airliners can be shot out of the sky, and people will be scratching their heads saying, where did these weapons come from? Well, uh, Wilmer, uh, a lot of people are saying precisely these same things. And guess what? They're being called Putin apologists. Uh, they've been called, uh, you're in Putin's pocket. No, this is reality. Um, there were Congress people who tried to get provisions in, in this uh, latest tranche of, of military and economic aid uh, that they be monitored, that they be accounted for, and they were defeated. So what we have is the gravy train again for Lockheed Martin, for Raytheon. These are people who are profiteering the war when, as you point out, people like me, I filled up my gas tank today, used to cost $30. Now it costs $60, okay? So Americans are feeling that. The question really is, uh, how will Biden look at the midterms? Now, it's not just McGovern saying that. It's... Vladimir Putin, who has said more than once that U.S. foreign and, and military policy is uh, is hostage, his word, is hostage to U.S. political events domestically, okay? Now, that's big because the midterms are coming up. It doesn't look very good for Biden and the Democrats. And so what can Putin expect? It doesn't matter what we expect. What can he expect? Well, I think he expects the worst and he has to plan for the worst. So this would be an incentive for for him to go farther, still farther, uh, to take Odessa, to go uh, into Transnistria. Uh, You know, it's really, really dumb not to stop him right now and to say, look, we're not going to fight anymore for the last Ukrainian. We're going to stop it and we're going to get the best deal we can, given the lay of the land, given the facts on the ground. You know, here's the thing, though. Um, if I'm we're playing we're playing um, cards and I got a royal flush and you say, let's make a deal. I say, great. Yeah. Give me all your money. 
because I'm taking it one way or the other. I got a royal flush and you got a, a two and a one-eyed jack. We know how this hand's going to end, right? So even right now, they've waited too long to make a deal with the Russians when the Russians are winning overwhelmingly, and you're actually trying to avoid total destruction, the Russians are in a position to say, yeah, we'll make a deal with you. You will give us everything we want or no deal. And if you don't want to make a deal, fine, because we're going to get everything we want without a deal. So how do you, I'll put it like this, as far as a deal, what does Ukraine and its masters have to offer Russia now that they can't take by arms? Before you answer, Ray, let me just quickly say, uh, Garland, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think Russia, with the exception of the denazification issue, they've already accomplished what they set out to accomplish. So, so you're right. And this is really along the lines of I just remember my dad looking at me sometimes saying, son, how painful do you want this to be? <laughs> well, you know what, dad? I think we can end this now. And, <laughs> and, and and add this, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this, right? but the gas has been drying up here in Germany the last day or so. And anyway, Ray, we got about uh, two minutes. Your go. Well, uh, Wilmer and, and Garland, um, we, we have to prioritize, I think, what Putin really wants and what he needs. Um, he needs uh, the kind of deal which will guarantee uh, that uh, people will not be shooting uh, high-caliber uh, artillery across the Dnieper River into eastern Ukraine. This is going to take some real negotiations. Whether they can happen before the midterms or not, probably not. There have been Russian spokespeople who say, look, this will go on to the end of the year for sure. Now, what happens at the end of the year? There'll be a new Congress. There'll be a lot of new people in Congress. How will they how will they look at all this? Anybody's guess. So for the nonce, I think what uh, what what Putin's priorities are were listed in his uh, his imploring for a telephone conversation with Biden on the 30th of December 2021 last year. And this is what the Russian readout said. <clears throat> Joseph Biden emphasized, now listen to this, that Washington had no intention of deploying offensive strike weapons in Ukraine. Whoa, offensive strike missiles. So Biden promised Putin directly, one-on-one -on, -one on the telephone, that Washington had no intention of deploying offensive strike weapons in Ukraine, as they have started to do in Romania and Poland. Now, if Putin can get satisfaction on this, uh, and there can be a, a modicum of trust born of the fact that he has the high cards, then trust but verify. There would be doverai no proverai. There would have to be uh, an agreement to verify the fact that not only will no medium or intermediate range nuclear missiles go into Ukraine, but the ones that are starting to be put in Poland and the ones that are already completed, the sites that is to accommodate them in Romania, be destroyed. That's what he would be most interested in, in obtaining for the long, for the immediate term. Whatever happens is not going to what in the broader picture is not going to happen until after a new Congress comes in next January. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. 
Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The South China Morning Post reports, Pentagon official says, quote, act of aggression, end quote, by Beijing against Taiwan would draw global response like Russia has seen. Quote, where the world is now, the Ukraine scenario is a much more likely outcome, says Colin Call, the Pentagon's Undersecretary for Defense Policy. She also says indications are that Beijing did not believe Russia actually planned to invade Ukraine and calls it an intelligence failure. Well, my first question is, why does the Pentagon and mainstream Western media continue to perpetuate this notion that China is going to invade Taiwan? And my second question is, for as close as Presidents Xi and Putin are, we're really supposed to believe a Pentagon undersecretary position on intelligence? Third question, where are the weapons, Garland? Where are the weapons of mass destruction that were supposed to be in Iraq? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So this whole, this continuing to perpetuate this idea that China is the aggressor here, and then if you would respond to do you really believe that President Xi was caught off guard by the uh, intervention that Russia in, engaged in in Ukraine? Yes. Well, the first question is, you know, China certainly doesn't have any uh, aggressive designs on Taiwan. It's only if the U.S. Uh, decides to encourage uh, secession that China reserves the right to use kinetic force because it sees Taiwan legitimately as a province. And it's as if, um, for example, you know, the U.S. had been, uh, for example, if China had been encouraging the state of Mississippi after uh, the Civil War to declare itself an independent republic that claimed all of the United States for itself. So, yeah. China does not want a war with Taiwan. It sees Taiwan, the Taiwan people, as brothers and family, and it understands that the historical forces will move inexorably towards China uh, reabsorbing Taiwan, uh, prime, as it as it as it had Taiwan prior to the fact of the Japanese stripping it away in their colonial uh, war against China. So this is unfinished historical business. It's unfinished civil war. And it's also part of, uh, you know, the U.S. encirclement, the U.S. Uh, attempt to use Taiwan as the key dagger in its encirclement of China along the first island chain. As to whether China was caught, caught off guard, you know, I think that's an open question. Certainly, uh, the Chinese seem to have been caught off guard because mm. 
they didn't do the things that other countries did, which is to start to evacuate their own personnel. And I should mention that they also evacuated Taiwanese people out of Ukraine. So I think there are several um, indicators that suggest that China had uh, an excuse and the right timing to start to evacuate its people, but it didn't. And it almost, you know, had itself uh, in a very, very precarious and dangerous situation. So I think if the Russians did communicate anything, it would have been in an ambiguous or precarious or uh, plausibly deniable fashion. The other thing I think is, you know, the Chinese are kind of, as are many of uh, people who the U.S. has designated adversaries, kind of sitting on the side with a soft drink and a, and a bag of popcorn watching the empire crash. The, the Chinese don't, you know, they're watching the U.S. empire just spin out of control and fall apart. They don't have to attack Taiwan tomorrow because the U.S. is not getting stronger and stronger. It's getting weaker and weaker. And if they must do what they have to do, as you said, if some other country came and said, yeah, we're Puerto Rico is uh, now a uh, free country and we're going to fight the U.S. If the U.S. tries to hold on to Puerto Rico, the U.S. would probably do something to ensure that a pro- something that they had would not be taken away. But I think anything other than that, the pro- the the Chinese recognize time is on their side and the way things are going for the U.S. time is, I mean, very short for the U.S. empire, particularly with the way that the um, the economy in the U.S. empire and the EU are just uh, completely crashing. Yes, you're absolutely correct. You know, the Chinese think about policy and politics in terms of centuries, if not millennia. And, you know, come, you know, being a civilizational state that has lasted three, four, five thousand years, they always take the long haul, the long view into consideration. I think it's a well-known anecdote that somebody asked Zhou Enlai, the premier of China, you know, whether 1968 was uh, uh, a good occurrence. And he wouldn't answer. So they said, well, what about 1917? And he still wouldn't answer. And so finally, they decided they had to throw in a softball and ask, well, what do you think about the French Revolution, 1789? And he said, it's too early to tell. The Chinese <laughs> always think about the long term. And they know that they don't have to do anything. It's almost as if, you know, you have, um, you know, a, a foreign body lodged uh, in, your, in, in your finger or your arm. And you know that eventually that wound will heal and the foreign body will be ejected. It's the U.S. which is trying to precipitate things because it knows that the longer it waits, the stronger China becomes. And as the empire becomes weaker, uh, it becomes more desperate and more inclined to provoke and use military force because that's what it has left. It's like the drunk at the bar whose credit cards are being refused to struck out, was struck out with everybody and now is spoiling for a fight as the bartender calls the last drinks. So this is approximately the situation that's going on. That said, we do have to remember that the Chinese Secretary of Defense warned the United States in the strongest terms not to play with fire. The Chinese are serious. Uh, I see this as comparable to Joe and Lai's warning about the Korean War when they warned the United States not to cross the DMZ. The U.S. laughed at it, considered China to be a failed and failing state. 
They sneezed at it, crossed over, and the next thing you knew, the Eighth Army was engaged in the longest uh, strategic retreat uh, in its entire history. The Chinese are slow to rouse to war. They do not want war. All their capital cities have streets named after peace, but they mean what they say. And I think the United States should sit up and pay attention. There's a very interesting piece, The Lethality of Washington's Global Monroe Doctrine. Uh, This past week, as part of its policy to dominate the American hemisphere, the U.S. organized the Ninth Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. It was a fiasco. Next year, 2023, will be the bicentennial of the Monroe Doctrine when the U.S. asserted its hegemony over the American hemisphere. The malign spirit of the doctrine not only continues, but now has been extended by the U.S. government into a kind of global Monroe Doctrine. Your thoughts, K.J. No. Yeah, no, this is exactly correct. This global Monroe Doctrine has a name and a genesis and an author and a group associated with it. It's the CNAS people who currently occupy 18 of top positions in the Biden administration. It comes out of the Project for a New American Century, which comes out of the Wolfworth Doctrine enunciated in 1992, that the United States should be the global hegemon, that it has to be the boss of the entire planet, and it sees fit to do so by any means necessary, including preemptive genetic war, uh, you know, with no regard for, uh, you know, legality or or even uh, global public opinion. This is the world that we live in. It's the world in which the strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. But the reversal at this point is that The strong, the United States, is no longer strong as it sees itself, as it imagines itself. And it is like, you know, the washed up fighter who goes into the ring imagining that they're still, you know, the champion of the days of yore and astonished to find themselves uh, on on their rear end on the canvas. Let me ask you this, KJ, in, in that uh, the interwar.com story, the pa- Pentagon official says Chinese attack on Taiwan would see a response similar to Ukraine invasion. In looking at that, that's kind of what I thought all along. Basically, they're, they're like, they want to lead Taiwan down the primrose path, get them blasted to pieces and then say, yeah, well, we're going to um, we're going to, you know, we're going to smite you, smite uh, China for the terrible things that they've done to you through uh, sanctions, which they wouldn't be able to do to China because it would be a total economic suicide. And basically, and we're going to sacrifice as many of you as, as, as we can. But China's an island. You can't, I mean, excuse me, Taiwan's an island. You can't sneak weapons <laughs> into an island sitting in the middle of the sea. So, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. Taiwan is an island. It is one eighteenth the size of Ukraine. Uh, Taiwan is about twice the size of the greater Chicago area. It's not a very large place, and it's surrounded by a lot of water and is thousands and thousands of miles away from the United States. So you're not going to be able to sneak weapons in. Uh, And any ship that even attempts to do that will find itself at the bottom of Davy Jones's locker very rapidly. So, you know, I think that there's some, you know, real, uh, you know, miscalculation going on. The Taiwanese themselves are not interested in war with China. They don't believe that China will attack. Uh, They certainly don't believe that uh, they should fight 
and they also don't trust that the United States uh, will fight for them. Many of them believe that the U.S. should fight for them because it's the U.S.'s war. They don't want to fight it, but they also distrust about 60% of them, uh, distrust whether the U.S. will actually come to Taiwan's aid. So it is not going to be that simple. Ukraine, the U.S. has built up, you know, over uh, at least a decade, a decade and a half, you know, using it um, and weaponizing it uh, against Russia and instigating, you know, a kinetic war in, uh, in the East. That is a different situation from Taiwan, where Taiwan is an island, you know, it's very, very close to China. China has all the advantages of logistics, proximity, and most of all, resolve. That is very, very different from Ukraine. And as for uh, the notion that uh, a Chinese attack on Taiwan would see a response similar to the Ukraine invasion, well, that's not much of a disincentive. Mm-hmm. Because as we can see, uh, you know, that, that, those, that sanction regime is not working. It's, it's about as, as, as much of a disincentive as Waterloo or Gien Bien Phu uh, was to the Vietnamese. In fact, thank you, because that takes me to my next part of my next point. The Center for a New American Security, CNAS, one of these think tanks, Colin Call, the the, the spokesperson that did all the speaking, was speaking at uh, the, 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 the Undersecretary for Defense Policy, was speaking at one of their conferences. Potential adversaries and aggressors everywhere else in the world are looking at the global response in Ukraine. Well, if they are, they're not seeing much. And what they're seeing, I believe, is a lot of dissension that has been uh, kind of veneered over to make it look like cooperation. But I think this thing is slowly falling apart. We have about a minute and a half. The dangers of these think tanks is what I think people should take away from a lot of this a lot of this dialogue. Yes. Well, I mean, specifically, CNAS is one of the most dangerous think tanks around because they are the neo-neocons. They are an inheritor of the project for a new American century, PNAC, mm-hmm. and they are the ones that want war with Russia and China. But simply, as you point out, you know, the world is seeing what is happening in Ukraine. They're seeing that Russia is prevailing, and the fact that Starbucks and McDonald's is going to leave Russia is not scaring anybody. If Starbucks and McDonald's leave China, uh, the Chinese are going to be healthy and happy. It's not going to hurt them. And on the other hand, as I said, China's economy is 10 times that of Russia's. It's involved in semiconductors, rare earth metals. It's the largest trading partner of most countries. Uh, and it, you know, is embedded in most of the world's uh, supply chain. So I think these kind of threats and blusters are largely, largely ineffective. And they speak to uh, you know, the lack of, um, you know, substance the U.S. has had, uh, sound and fury signifying nothing. And to your point about PNAC, PNAC was also the organization or the think tank that fomented the brilliant idea to invade Iraq. Exactly. The cakewalk, as we last recall it. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Common Dreams, a big mistake. Economists warn Fed rate hikes risk plunging U.S. into recession. Every time over the last half century, the Fed has raised interest rates this much and this quickly. It has caused a recession, according to former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is a former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So yesterday, the Fed decided to raise interest rates by 75 basis points or three quarters of a point, the largest increase since 1994. How big of a problem do you foresee this being, Dr. Tahid? Well, uh, I, I agree with what economists, uh, most economists are finally saying, is that the Fed is doing uh, raising interest rates too much, uh, that this will lead to recession. Now, I, my, you know, my point is not that it's too much. My point is that it's, it's ineffective because this is not a demand led inflation. This is a supply-led inflation. In fact, there there are uh, at least five things that I think are contributing to inflation. Uh, one is corporate price gouging, which the Biden administration seems to acknowledge but is uh, unable to do anything about. Uh, there are the supply chain issues, which is, uh, you know, a globalization issue, which uh, the Biden administration can do nothing about. There is the coming pandemic slowdown uh, because um, um, the variants are, are increasing the, uh, the the rate of infection, and so there will be slowdowns again. Uh, there's a climate crisis, which is almost never discussed in this context, but there are uh, shortfalls in agricultural production, particularly in the, in the Midwest and and the West, due to climate due to inclement or unusual weather. And then, of course, the thing that's always talked about that 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 uh, President Putin is is pointing to is the sanctions. But he's saying this is the the sanctions are are Putin's fault, uh, not not the, the the fault of the Western nations that are bringing those sanctions. So we have those five things that are going on, uh, some of which the Biden administration can do something about, most of which they cannot. But it's certainly true that the Fed can do nothing about any of that. So, uh, you know, basically, it seems to me that they've got one tool and that's kind of a baseball bat where they need a scalpel. And they're they're like, well, since we don't have a scalpel, we'll just use the baseball bat for brain surgery. And I I mean, is that an app? I mean, there's some things that need to be done, but you got to do here and act here and move there. You've got to address price gouging. You've got to see how you can deal with the supply chain and look into it in detail and figure out. And here's the other part. Sometimes there's things you just can't fix that easy. And some of this seems like they want to make it a appear like they're doing something when they can't. And B, as I said, they only got one tool, so they're going to use that one and pretend it'll work. Yeah. Well, there, there are two, two different uh, types of tools that uh, federal level agencies, the, the Treasury and, and the Fed, can use. One is to uh, uh, manipulate or, or raise or lower um, interest rates, which is the Fed's only tool. And then there's what's called, that's called monetary policy. Uh, another is fiscal policy, which is uh, federal spending. And, and monetary policy, raising and lowering interest rates, does well in 
uh, quelling or, or accelerating demand if, if you're trying to get out of a recession. Uh, but but uh, what 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 needs to be done now is fiscal tools, federal spending, in order to increase supply. We have a supply shortage, and uh, of course, what, what's happening politically is that the Biden administration couldn't get Build Back Better uh, passed, which would would have addressed supply. It would have been federal spending, which would have raised supply and therefore kept prices down. But they couldn't get that passed, and they can't blame it on the Republicans because it's the Democrats that block that. And so what, what's obvious I, to me anyway that uh, the Biden administration is, is uh, unable to get done what it can do, and so it's putting the burden, if you will, on the Federal Reserve Bank, which ha- only has the, has the wrong tool to deal with the supply crisis. I was listening to one of the news programs this morning as I was preparing for the show, and they were talking about inflation. They were talking about the uh, Fed response, and they said, well, you know, as a result of all of the money that the federal government pumped into the economy during COVID, the COVID relief package, that, you know, the the economy is now awash with money. And I said, now, how many years ago was that? And how little money was that? And how that money has all been spent by now. And it but that's the narrative that many of these uh, channels, I think it was on on Fox that they were that they were promoting But uh, to that, though. Common Dreams has another piece with U.S. consumers getting fleeced. Democrats demand windfall profits tax on big oil. If you could speak to that, a what type of impact would it have and how likely is a corporatist like Joe Biden to try and promote a windfall profits tax? Well, you know, Joe Biden has been uh, trying to encourage corporations not to to price gouge their consumers. And uh, uh, they they told Joe where to go. They're, they're not if they're if they're able to do that, if they're able to gouge their customers, they're going to do it. That's like, uh, you know, capitalism one on one. And and so you know a windfall profit tax is a is a, is a tax that excuse me windfall profit is a profit that you would not ordinarily have. It comes because there's some situation that has occurred that makes it easier to 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 get profits. And in an inflationary time, it's easier for corporations to hide behind quote the general inflation. And, and to get away with an increase in their in their profitability, uh, I've got a little example here. Let's say let's say uh, for oil, let's say the price of a, a gallon of a, a gallon of oil is one dollar per gallon. Uh, refinery costs to turn that into gasoline is one dollar a gallon, and uh, the profit, let's say, at fifty percent of those costs, is another dollar a gallon. That would make your gasoline three dollars a gallon. Now, if the price of oil goes up and it has let's say it goes up to two dollars a gallon refinery cost goes up because of wage and so forth goes up to two dollars a gallon a profit of 50 percent is two dollars per gallon that makes your gasoline six dollars a gallon now the difference is when the gas when oil was a dollar a gallon the the profit was a dollar a gallon now that it's up uh, uh, to $2 a gallon, the, the, the profit is $2 a gallon, but that's an extra dollar per gallon that would not have been there except for the inflation of uh, inflationary price of oil in general. And corporations are taking advantage of that, getting that extra windfall profit just because the price of oil is up 
that 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 extra windfall profit should be taken away from them. It's it's a, it's a misfortune tax, if you will, on the public. I, I hope that was clear. Yes. yes, it was. Another article. Polls show majority of U.S. voters opposed to record-level Pentagon budget. There is absolutely no excuse for writing the Pentagon a blank check. It didn't even ask for, said public citizens Robert Weissman. And I see and hear, uh, you know, this is anecdotally, more and more people upset about the money going to Ukraine. And as things get more difficult, people are asking, why is the United States spending its money on X instead of us? Dr. Tawheed. Well, what the what the U.S. public is seeing with the the spending on Ukraine is is uh, extra money uh, from the U.S. Treasury from taxpayers going to the weapons industry to supply weapons to Ukraine. Uh, that's not even discussed in terms of the increased military budget. That's outside of the military budget, but it does focus attention on the fact that uh, as the military budget goes up, even beyond what the Department of Defense asked for. Uh, that extra money goes to weapon manufacturers. And it makes it very clear that it's the military-industrial complex that's driving the the huge and continuous increase in military spending uh, simply because uh, these companies are able to uh, price gouge, they're able to set their products, uh, their prices at at whatever they want to um, and uh, demand or even uh, bribe by, by campaign contributions of politicians, Democrats, and Republicans to essentially give them what they want. Uh, in, in this time of, of, of crisis in so many other areas, and then the Ukraine war, it's becoming very clear that the military budget is way beyond what it should be and, and has been that way for a long time. The Jim Hightower has a piece, Can Democrats Save Their Party from Its Leadership? If you choose to abandon this whole working class constituency, surprise, it will abandon you. Uh, As we move into the 2022 midterms and then we're looking at 2024, and it really uh, seems to me as though the Democrats have no clue based on they said Biden said the right things during the campaign, but seems to have been able to deliver on zero. And they're doubling down on stupidity. Your thoughts, Dr. Tahi? Well, what the, what the Democrats have, have relied on in not delivering is uh, are, are two Democrats in the Senate, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And uh, they've been able to say, well, we have good intention. We'd like to get this passed. But uh, those two are standing in the way. I think it's very convenient to have that, uh, that, that fallback that, you know, you'd like to do all the things that Joe Biden campaigned on. Of course, Bernie Sanders took those campaign promises and put them into a budget uh, as chair of the budget committee. He called that Build Back Better plan. Uh, those things were never passed because of Democrats. Uh, and, and the Democrats are, are pretending that, that they are, uh, you know, impotent in this process. And so uh, when you talk about Democrats saving themselves from their leadership, uh, we've got a president who is the leader of the party who's not able to get uh, at just two members of his party uh, to, to, to fall in line and do what he promised and do what even um, uh, the Democrats or, or, or uh, citizens in West Virginia, Manchin State or Arizona want, want to do. I think it's a very convenient uh, to, to blame them for it. And I think the, the American public 
is uh, seeing through that game and understanding that that Joe Biden and the Democrats never intended to do the things that they campaigned on. I think you're absolutely right. And we were saying on this show during the campaign that the one thing that the Democrats did not want was the Senate and the House because they needed to be able to to blame the other for not getting it done. We have a minute. Right. That, you know, the bipartisan bill, the, the small part of the of the quote build back better plan, you know, that bipartisan bill was passed with Republican uh, support. Uh, but we, we pointed out that there are some poison pills in that bill that make it dangerous for the for the American public. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the Democrats, you know, can't say that they are even responsible for that portion of it because they they, they labeled it a bipartisan bill. And so Republicans get as much credit for that as Democrats, but Democrats get all the blame for not passing what's called the social parts of that bill, uh, health care and child care and those other kind of mm-hmm. things that would benefit ordinary people. And so the corporatists win, ordinary people lose again, and Democrats are responsible for that. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Nicaragua. Government orders suspension of foreign NGOs for failure to comply with regulations. The Ministry of the Interior of Nicaragua has ordered the suspension of operations of nine foreign nonprofit organizations for their failure to comply with internal controls and Nicaraguan regulations. What does this mean? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest, Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace, member of the Black Working Class Center, Ojima People's Progress Party in Maryland, founder of Liberation Through Reading, and co-editor of the Revolutionary African blog, Erica Ryan Keynes. Erica, welcome back. Welcome to the Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. According to a resolution published in Nicaragua's official gazette uh, on Tuesday, the aforementioned NGOs failed to register as foreign agents. You know, I've told, I've covered this many times, and I find it interesting that Nicaragua basically um, based that law on the U.S. Foreign Agent Registration Act law, and they're basically saying the same thing that we say, and the U.S. says, well, that's unfair. You can't uh, require um, nonprofit organizations to do the same thing that we require, require them to do. And I suspect, Erica, it's because those uh, nonprofit organizations in Nicaragua are funded by the CIA. Your thoughts? Right. Um, So recently, uh, Black Alliance for Peace, Haiti, and the Americas team just concluded counteractions against the Summit of the Americas recently um, that just happened. Um, So during uh, our counteractions, we held an anti-imperialist summit alongside Union Del Barrio in L.A. And my comrade, Jimmy Pierre, who frequents the show, uh, made a profound statement while she was uh, on the panel about our inability to recognize NGOs as nonprofits. Like, for instance, as more people start to understand the function of the nonprofit industrial complex um, to stifle actual progress um, and progressive movements, they seemingly disconnect that from the function and the purpose of NGOs. 
So it's harder for people to recognize and understand soft power tools of imperialism because the overall disconnect in understanding imperialism as a domestic and global counterpart. So the U.S. uses institutions like National Endowment for Democracy, which is NED, or the United States Agency of um, International Development, uh, USAID, to instigate students and youth into taking stances against um, the left-wing government and potential revolutions. So we've seen this in Nicaragua um, in 2018. We've also seen this uh, with the 2014 Bayram, uh protests in Ukraine, the 2019 Hong Kong protests, uh, the 2021 Cuban, uh, uh, the minimal Cuban protests that occurred uh, last summer. Um, you know, with just a little bit of digging, you'll find uh, the you will find Ned or you'll find the USAID. Um, and in fact, the last time that I was on this show, I discussed the $250 million uh, American Competes Act bill, uh, which intends to do that, just that, um, flood all of these millions into these regions um, to establish these NGO institutions. You mentioned the National Endowment for Democracy, and I, I, I think it's important for people to, to understand Karen Bass, former congresswoman who's running to be the mayor of Los Angeles, is on the board of directors of the National Endowment for Democracy. So folks think that they're voting for this liberal progressive person. Well, that might not be as liberal and progressive as one would think. Right. And then also Samantha Powers with the uh, USAID as well. Um, so they're kind of working congruently because um, – while that is a private nonprofit foundation, it is funded through the USAID, which is a private international development. Um, so a lot of what we're seeing happening um, is a result of that soft power. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's interesting because I think when people think about coups or they they think about um, uh, disruptions in these uh, you know these civil protests, uh, I think people look at. Um, the U.S. militarily, and they see the military commands like AFRICOM and they see SOUTHCOM, but they don't really understand or recognize um, these soft power institutions. And NED, which was established in 1983, I think one of the uh, more infamous quotes came from um, the person who founded it, uh, who insisted that this was the exact purpose of the NEA, you know, of these institutions uh, were to do the more covert actions where the military military would be more overt in that sense. There's an article in uh, Orinoco Tribune, the uh, summit of exclusion backfires on Biden. And the second paragraph, while hosting the ninth summit of the Americas in Los Angeles, the Biden administration sought to ostracize Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela by excluding them due to the alleged lack of democratic space and human rights situations. Well, when I look at the global landscape now and I see President Maduro from Venezuela traversing the world, having signing deals with Iran, he's in Qatar. Uh, being received as the head of state that he is, you now have uh, Nicaragua in their election and banning what, what we just talked about. It seems as though those leaders have now been empowered and emboldened. They have not been ostracized. No, no. And, you know, I think this backfired in the same way that the U.S. Uh, tried to use sanctions levied against Russia to— um, to directly affect those three nations. Um, 
But I think a lot of people have the idea that uh, a lot of the turmoil in the region is primarily because of Trump and his policies towards the region. But in Biden's first year, we saw Biden and the administration ignore months of mass protests in Haiti um, and vehemently defend the now assassinated Haitian uh, President Jovenel Moïse of constitutional stay. And they're also now recognizing the unconstitutional state of Ariel Henry, who was invited um, to the Summit of Americas, despite nobody voting for him in Haiti. Um, so, And they were doing that as they're excluding Cuba. And in the last year, they attempted to capitalize on those pre- those protests ignited by the um, by led, like what we spoke to earlier, to gain favor from right-wing uh, Miami-based Cubans and continue the decades attempt to destabilize the country. Like we've seen that, we've seen uh, Kamala Harris tell people in Guatemala do not come here. Uh, we've seen um, Haitians being whipped at the border, uh, which is now the image of a, a, a commemorative coin for border control. Uh, and there's been doubling down on more funding and more ICE. So the, the idea that the U.S. Can talk about democracy as they're engaging the region in this way is completely hypocritic. Is complete hypocrisy, and that's why you can see the multipolarity, the multipolarity happening in the region, um, especially out. You know what Venezuela is doing as far as reaching these contacts. What Nicaragua is doing, um, they're, they're, the region going going closer to uh, relationships with Russia and China, despite the U.S. Um, so as long as the U.S. operates as a hegemon instead of a partner in our region, because this is our Americas, um, the peoples and nations of Latin America and the Caribbean, they should consider the U.S. an enemy to national sovereignty and the people-centered human rights. Um, so it's, it's absurd um, that the U.S. thinks that they could strong on multiple countries and there not be uh, a reaction. You know, I think if I could get you to comment on this, I do think that one of the things that that we have learned over through this Biden administration, the first year and a half of the Biden administration, is that people who were saying, you know, it's Trump, Trump, Trump. Yeah, yeah, Trump was no prize. But we're seeing how much of the foreign policy was a matter of empire, of imperialism, of the U.S. empire. And no matter who goes to the helm, the empire is going to go in the direction that it wants, so much so that even if a president wouldn't want to do it, uh, you know, I'm not going to bring up James JFK, but you get the picture. Your thoughts on the whole issue of imperialism and how it's been made more obvious now after Trump and then into Biden. Right. Well, what, what I, I have a piece in Hood Communist where I talk about, uh, you know, the soft power and the hard power tactics uh, with with these institutions and also with Southcom. Um, but I think what 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 needs to be recognized is that regardless if Biden calls that region the backyard or the front yard, uh, because obviously that's his attempt to make the distinction um, as if to say that this is a new era of relationships with the region. But as I just noted, it's the exact same because it's all an extension of, you know, uh, the Monroe Doctrine, the, the racist Monroe Doctrine, where the U.S. sees or understands the region, the entire region, as its own. And maneuvers in that way, uh, so any sort of um, any sort of uh, connections or relationships forged with who, whoever the U.S. sees as its enemy, whether that be Iran, China, or Russia, uh, poses as a problem primarily because 
of that racist Monroe Doctrine, where the U.S. believes that all of the Americas belongs to it. There's another piece in Orinoco Tribune, Elections in Colombia Between Hopes and Concerns. It opens, as we know, last May 29th, the first round of elections. The candidates of uh, uh, Petro and Marquez obtained the highest number of votes. Where do you see right now? Uh, because uh, I think on sun- this coming Sunday, all eyes will, will once again be on Colombia. What are you looking at uh, the results coming out of Colombia this Sunday? Well, yeah, the election itself that happened in May, they were historic, um, not only because, you know, it was a leftist presidential ticket leading in the polls, but because vice presidential candidate um, on the ticket was Francia uh, Marquez, who is a popular, well-known Afro-Colombian feminist activist, uh, grassroots activist. So she comes from that background. So that's pretty exciting to see, especially as uh, here in the U.S., as we don't have that sort of one-to-one understanding uh, because, you know, there's a significant difference between Kamala Harris and Afrancia. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, the, the Petro uh, Marquez uh, Pacto Historica, I believe, Historico, uh, they received around, what, 8.5 million votes. So while this was like a clear victory, they didn't receive more than the 50% that would have allowed them to claim an outright win. So which means that, you know, we're back... Um, we're circling back around. But what is significant is that um, one of the other running mates vowed to unite with the second-place winner, um, the right-wing Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, as a clear consolidation of right-wing elite forces against that popular leftist ticket. Mm -hmm. And then with Hernandez, uh, I think in the article they're saying that, you know, he, he vows for a decree of a state of, commotion in a state of emergency because he wants to govern with all powers, that's pretty dangerous. And we see that uh, there were certain intimidation tactics around uh, the voting itself. Okay. Um, so so we, so it's, it's a very significant thing. Um, you know, all eyes are on Colombia right now because it'll be a definite shift in the region. Mm-hmm. We know that Colombia is known as the is- Israel of Latin America right now. So if the left ticket um, could win, that would be a definite shift okay. in um, how things are. Erica Ryan Keynes, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New Arab reports two dead and seven injured in Turkish airstrikes on YBS sites in northern Iraq. Turkey launched a series of airstrikes targeting the Sinjar Resistance Units, or the YBS, a militia affiliated with the PKK in northern Iraq yesterday, killing at least two people and injuring seven. What's the purpose of the strikes? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, political analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. My pleasure. Before we get to the Turkey story, 
yesterday, we discussed President Biden will visit the Middle East region from July 13th through the 16th to reinforce the United States ironclad commitment to Israel's security and prosperity and attend a summit of the Gulf Cooperation Council plus Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan, known as the GCC plus three. He will also meet with counterparts from across the region to advance U.S. security, economic, and diplomatic interests. Uh, we thought that getting your take on this visit, particularly since he's going to Israel first, then he's going to go to, uh, I believe, Gaza, but they don't mention Palestine. Your thoughts on all of this, Laith Marouf? Yeah, I mean, it's clear the United States is attempting to, on the one hand, uh, bring in a new, uh, an increased supply of gas and oil from Western Asia to uh, Europe to replace the uh, Russian supplies that are uh, being sanctioned. And at the same time, uh, that will mean that uh, they will need to uh, address all the regional players like the Zionists and the Saudis and their needs. And at the same time, what does that mean for confrontation with the resistance axis from Iran and Hezbollah and the resistance in Palestine when the whole uh, plan that the Biden has will need to depend on security of these supplies? And so there's these two conflicting, I believe, um, impossible to uh, reconciliate uh, 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 things that are going to happen. If the United States wants to replace the Russian supply through the looted uh, gas and oil of uh, Lebanon uh, and Palestine, um, what will be the response of the axis of resistance? And that response, how does it actually uh, you know, lead to more supplies of the United States. It's a, it's a, it's a very touchy situation right now in all of West Asia, and all these plans are going to require an enforcement. And uh, so we're heading to war, whichever way we look at it. Uh, what do you know about the? Um, I believe there was an Egyptian press conference about this issue. Yes, so the Egyptian government, the Israelis, uh, and the European Union had a, a, a joint press conference announcing that they will be transferring looted Palestinian and Lebanese uh, gas supplies from uh, the Zionist colony to uh, Egyptian um, terminals that can liquefy that gas and then export it into uh, Europe through uh, Greece and Cyprus. So as we see already, the plan is unfolding before even Biden lays uh, foot in the region. And we know clearly to uh, have this supply continue, the uh, Lebanese population and the resistance there and the Palestinian resistance will have to not resist <laughs> this looting. And at the same time, if the United States uh, wants to the Saudis to increase their supplies, how are you going to secure it? And and so clearly, if the United States uh, is attempting to replace the Russian oil, and as we saw, this is their last ditch because they couldn't 
convince Algeria to increase its supplies to Europe. They couldn't get uh, supplies from Venezuela to flow into Europe. And this is the last chance before the winter. If the United States is not able to secure uh, a, a alternative supply for Europe before winter arrives, it's game over. So just your, your quick opinion on this. The White House statement on this trip is reinforcing the United States ironclad commitment and then also it's going to advance U.S. security. How much of this is really transactional versus how much of this is the meeting of like minds in terms of mindset and ideology? Hopefully that question makes sense and it's something that, 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 that that you can answer. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a symbiosis. You see, the United States is in this situation and has always been in this situation when we talk about the Zionist colony and or uh, the Saudi-occupied Arabia. These are, without these two nodes in the imperial order, uh, one to guarantee that the huge uh, oil and gas supplies of the uh, Arab world are, are looted unabatedly for the last uh, 80 years. And the other is to make sure that the supply routes, and that's where Palestine as an occupied land is so important, the supply routes of that looting continue. And so if the United States uh, does not project force there, uh, it's not only about the Zionists themselves, no, their end is coming if the if the empire doesn't project its, uh, its, its power there. But also the the empire itself will not exist if it cannot uh, continue the control of this region. And um, we will have a proxy war. The United States is not going to be involved directly. And as we saw in in Russia and in in Ukraine and in Syria and in Yemen, these proxy wars, these proxy militaries that the United States is depending on are useless. What do we know about the um, the Turkish strike on the YBS on the on the, on the um, Yazidi group? Yes, so this is part of exactly the same uh, plan. You see, uh, right now Turkey is being maneuvered to project uh, its military force on the north of Iraq and the north of Syria, and uh, which means that the you see it's 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 like a. a, a a, uh, a vice grip right now coming from the north, from Turkey, from uh, the center, from uh, occupied Palestine, and from the south in the Saudi. So this is the how the United States positioned its its uh, uh, you know military force in the region, and you know they have an advantage on that point because. The Syrian military is going to be in a situation of uh, an open war. We'll be having to confront on three sides uh, the United States and its proxies. It's a, a long game, and the attacks on North Syria and in this situation, the North North Iraq right now have been increasing over the last week. Um, and Turkey is um, piling up its military force in those regions. You know, in the last uh, 48 hours, both the Syrian military and the Russian military moved a lot of forces into the north of Syria, uh, you know, b- both in Menbij and Khamishli. Um, 
Now, we have the third story that we're going to be talking about, and that's very much related to also, which is the uh, situation in Iraq uh, parliament after the withdrawal of uh, Sadr Locke. And again, that's very related to this story. So go ahead. Uh, what we have is uh, uh, Sadrists resign parliament, but Sadr's influence in Iraq endures. Go ahead, Leith. So... Um, Muqtada Sadr and his bloc won the largest number of seats. Uh, he was kind of uh, in between, between the resistance bloc and the American-controlled bloc. And now with his uh, withdrawal and all of his um, members of parliament withdrawing, that means uh, the resistance bloc actually has a majority. And so how is this going to play out? Is there going to be even a government formed in Iraq as we see the president of Iraq uh, and the prime minister of Iraq will be going to this meeting with Biden that we discussed with the uh, Gulf um, Cooperation Council plus three. And so um, these things are all related uh, and the whole uh, ground between Palestine and, um, you know, Iraq and Yemen, that triangle is a contested zone. And uh, somebody, one of the players will have to assert their dominance. And so it's going to be like a bone crushing um, battle uh, for dominance in this region because the United States cannot confront Russia in Ukraine directly. That's a, a, a no, no zone anymore. And so we will see this uh, global battle playing out in a regional format. The United States will sit on the side as it supplies its, um, you know, vessels, the three big Turkey, Saudi and uh, Israel. And let me ask you this, because I don't understand that well. What is Iraq's relationship with Iran? And is that part of the instability that's cause making it difficult to, um, is that question part of the instability that makes it difficult to form a government? Yeah, well, I mean, Iraq is a contested ground in the sense that uh, it has a huge Shia population um, and, of course, Sunni population that is uh, split by two, one being Arab, the other Kurds. And uh, that means that the United States couldn't have uh, a homogeneous population to uh, assert its uh, influence. And that's a good thing, actually. You know, if uh, Iraq was as homogeneous as Jordan, we would have had this uh, country that was docile for 100 years and, and, and continues to be a, a vessel of uh, the Americans and the English before them. Thus, Iraq had was part of the kingdom of the Hashemite kingdom um, that got split and Jordan was left over because of revolution there of those, uh, you know, allowing people to have different opinion. Uh, anyways, in, in that case, just to say right now, um, Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Palestine are contested grounds. How does Nuri al-Maliki uh, factor into all of this as it relates to uh, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr uh, using his power and his influence, even though his people have left the government. How does Nuri al-Maliki factor into this? We, we have about two minutes. 
Well, uh, now there will be a selection of a prime minister and a, and a president, and uh, definitely Nouri al-Maliki has a, has a bigger a chance of returning as prime minister. And uh, so the question is, will any government come to power before any war breaks out? Similarly, in Lebanon, uh, with, uh, you know, we don't, I don't expect a government to be formed before a war breaks out, where... You know, it it is irrelevant, truly, who is elected in these countries because these countries are not uh, real states yet. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You do as well. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports, Russia warns of potential gas disaster for Germany. Further problems with pumping units may lead to the shutdowns of the Nord Stream pipeline, Moscow says. Russia's EU ambassador, Vladimir Chizov, warned today that repair issues with Nord Stream pipelines pumping turbines could result in a complete stoppage of natural gas supplies to the EU. Interesting because Joe Biden's claim that Russia will use these pipelines for political purposes are now coming true, but I think for the wrong reasons. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Dan Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, It was July of last year that Biden and German Chancellor Merkel, they agreed that they would oppose any effort by Russia to use the contentious Nord Stream pipeline as a weapon against neighboring nations such as Ukraine. Dan, it seems that gas is the new weapon, but Russia is really not the culprit here. Yeah, what what's interesting, I mean, it's about very funny in this case, is the the reason that the pipeline is uh, its capacity is falling <laughs> is that Russia needs to send the the, um, uh, the the turbines to Canada for you know for maintenance every few years. Uh, this is you know part of the longstanding arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, the sanctions interfere with that process. So it's not Russia holding back the gas, apparently. Apparently, it's the sanctions kind of you know, wreaking havoc with the whole uh, maintenance question. So, um, so it's just an example of how the, the sanctions are backfiring yet again. Yeah, there's so much to it. Um, a while back, Germany seized uh, one of the local units of, of Gazprom. Well, they're having tr- trouble with that because when they seized, seized one of the local units of Gazprom, Gazprom then said, well, we're not sending any uh, gas to that unit. So you can have it, but you get no gas. And we see uh, – here's the other thing about it. The, uh, the, the, the apparently there's also gas that's been slowed going to France and other places in the EU. So the EU is kind of saying, no, 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 you're just doing it to be mean and you're just using gas as a weapon. But wait a minute. 
I mean, if we're let's just say for one moment that that were true. I don't know that it isn't, but that were true. The EU has said we're going to economically destroy Russia. We have we will use everything in our arsenal to wipe out Russia's economy. We're going to destroy Russia in every way, shape and form. They must be wiped off the face of this earth. And then, hey, I can't believe that they're retaliating. I mean, that's the part. Come on, really? If they were doing it, then all you would say is in an economic war, we fired a shot and they fired back. I don't see any evidence that that's the case. But if it were the arrogance to say, I'm going to wipe Dan Lazar off the face of the earth and then Dan like pushes me and I say, I can't believe that he struck back. That guy's unreasonable. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you impose trade sanctions, then then international trade is disrupted, disrupted. It, It seems quite clear. And I don't understand why the Germans are surprised or upset. I mean, uh. This is, you know, this is to be expected. This is normal. This is normal blowback from the economic warfare that is that is now taking place. So, uh, you know, so it's all it's all part of the game. It just makes no sense. And I, I mean, I do think it's unfortunate it's come to this. I think I think that the uh, the impacts on on Europe will be ex- will be quite strong, quite damaging. Uh, and um, and uh, it, it's going to the sanctions will wind up hurting the EU more than they're hurting Russia. But it didn't have to happen. I mean, you know, a year ago there was still a way out from this confrontation. So the story from RT: another EU buyer says Russia reduced gas supply. France's Engie is the fourth European customer to report smaller volumes of natural gas deliveries. And it's ironic, Dan, that a number of leaders from EU countries are in Ukraine talking to Zelensky today. So with the natural gas flows slowing down, the turbines not being repaired, I can only imagine that some of these leaders, if not all of these leaders, are saying, look, Mr. Zelensky, it's time for you to go home. This ain't working. Dan Lazar. Yeah. And, and what's, I mean, what a, a de- one development, which is really very funny, is the, the U.S. Uh, is quietly trying to, to purchase phosphate fertilizer right. from Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean— after imposing a boycott and then, you know, then, then, and then accusing Russia of bottling up grain shipments, uh, the U.S. now wants to break the boycotts because, you know, of course, America's own farmers are crying out for fertilizer and food prices are rising. You know, it just it makes no sense. And, and the, 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 the simple fact is, the, the, is that U.S. policy is failing across the board. It's, it's failing economically and it's failing militarily. Uh, Russia's winning, winning the war and, and the trade sanctions are backfiring. So Biden calls President Putin and says, hey, I need to buy some fertilizer. And President Putin says, well, but I thought you sanctioned me. Oh, Vlad, you oh, took that. me seriously? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was only kidding. <laughs> Go ahead, Garland. Um, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and if Germany were to try the same the same gambit, the U.S. would be you know would be overflowing with righteous indignation. It's just it's it's absurd. 
You know, Dan, I like to use anecdotes, and I think they're very valuable in instances like this. And just yesterday, I was in a local, you know, big box kind of store, Costco, to be honest, and because they sell gas, and I got gas. And when I went in, as I got up to the counter to, you know, get whatever I was getting, the conversation, and this was the person who was working there behind the, you know, counter, this were people in line. People were talking about the price of gas, and they were buying discount gas at, at Costco. They were di- talking about how disgusted they were with the Biden administration, with politics. They're all a bunch of crooks. This is an – I mean, the uh, – originally, people were walking around with their blue and yellow flags and pins and their emojis on their social media accounts. This thing has turned into a major debacle, and time is not on their side. And I don't think the Biden administration is competent enough to get a deal, even though they need one so bad, they are in, I mean, the Biden administration is incompetent in a way that I've never seen, and they are in trouble in a way that I've never seen. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. The, the incompetence of the administration is really uh, startling. Um, but I think, the, I think the problem is that, I mean, I mean, Biden came into office, you know, with a slogan, America is back. Uh, he wanted to undo the isolationist policies of, uh, of, of Donald Trump and, you know, and kind of reassert American hegemony uh, across the globe. Well, guess what? That particular train left the station years ago. Uh, I, I mean, U.S. hegemony is a thing of the past. And it was empty um, when it left. Right. And, and Biden, you know, Biden wants to turn back the clock to the glory days of of 1991 to 2003, we know in America's word was law, you know, uh, you know, throughout the, uh, the, the, the world. Um, and it just is not working. And not only is it not working, but, but trying to make it work is backfiring. Uh, in other words, it's, it's, it's serving to highlight the growing weakness of, of the U S international role. Um, so therefore, um, uh, you know, so therefore Biden, by pushing, is showing how weak America really is. And and this weakness is evident in the Ukraine, where, as I said before, U.S. policy is failing across the board. Um, and in the, you know, and in the international economy, where where the EU will take a major hit, the, the American economy is in serious trouble. And, uh, and in the third world, famine is stalking. And, you know, that's very serious. And this is this is due to the administration's serious miscalculations. And another factor or another element of evidence of that miscalculation is this uh, story. uh, Nasdaq, Russia says Europe faces 400 billion in dollars in costs in higher energy prices. Russia promised today to speed up talks about increased gas sales to China and warned that Europe would pay a hefty price for its oil embargo against Russia. So this is further evidence of the backfiring of the U.S. sanction policy because it's not as though Russia can't sell its gas on the, on the international market. It just won't go to the EU. It'll go to China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a major miscalculation. It just shows complete incompetence. But we, we really knew that all along. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, Trump, I mean, Biden's foreign policy 
foreign policy uh, uh, team just screamed weakness. Uh, Jake Sullivan, I mean, his national security advisor, he was a he was the chief architect of a uh, of Libyan intervention in 2011. Uh, and and that led to a complete and total disaster, uh, whose effects we're still you know feeling today. Um, uh, Blinken, you know, Blinken was you know was you know you know Blinken and Biden were a team and backing the uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, when Saudi Arabia declared war on Yemen. Blinken flew to Riyadh to, to assure him. Uh, sure, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman that that America had his back, you know. So every foreign policy disaster that there's been over the last twenty years or so, these guys have been involved in, and now they are involved in what could conceivably be the greatest disaster of them all. Let me put two things together. This is a, this is a March 24th in Brussels. Joe Biden says the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Right. The price of these sanctions. Here's a here's a story. June 15th. Business Insider. Biden officials worry their their Russia sanctions were so powerful that they also brought economic suffering to the U.S. Well, he predicted that they would. And now what do you know? They're shocked. I think people have this figured out. We got a minute and a half, Dan. Well, yes. I mean, and the disarray is evident. I mean, 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 the U.S., you know, quietly trying to buy fertilizer from Russia is a sign of, of, of policy disarray. Uh, Biden's upcoming trip to Riyadh, where he's going to, you know, to beg Mohammed bin Salman to pump more oil. I mean, this is the, this is the state that Biden campaigned on declaring a pariah. So essentially, he's going to he's going to to, to Riyadh to enlist the help of one of the most ferocious dictatorships on earth in fighting for democracy in the Ukraine. It just, it just makes zero sense. And what's more important, it makes zero sense to grow to millions and millions of Americans. And those numbers are growing. So what we have is right now a liter of gas in Moscow, which is a quarter of a gallon, is, ni- is 92 cents. So they're paying basically $3.60 for a gallon of gas while we're paying 9 I think the sanctions, we, we won. Uh, there we go. Vic- <laughs> victory, victory is ours. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time, so much for that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Guardian reports Ghislaine Maxwell asks court for sex trafficking sentence of well below 20 years. The disgraced British socialites lawyers 
argued that she was threatened in jail and cannot be made a proxy for Jeffrey Epstein. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an American columnist, syndicated editorial cartoonist, former war correspondent and author, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So just for a little background, she was convicted on December 29th of sex trafficking and related charges for luring girls, some age around 14, into the late financier Jeffrey Epstein's orbit for him to abuse. She insists on her innocence. She is scheduled to be sentenced on the 28th of June. She's facing up to 55 years behind bars. The U.S. Probation Department, which makes sentencing recommendations, has suggested a punishment of 240 months. Her sentence is ultimately up to the judge. But, Ted, she's saying that she can't be a surrogate for Epstein. The court cannot sentence her as if she were his proxy because he's no longer there. Ted, she's already experienced a hard time during her detention. She's the real victim here, Wilmer, obviously. We cannot allow her to be victimized again. And Ted, her life has been ruined. What are we to do, Ted Rawl? I'm sure her life has been ruined. Uh, that's, uh, you know, and deservedly so. Um you know, I, I, I generally tend not to side with the government uh, in, in any matter, really, but this is, might be an exception. Um, Ms., look, Ms., Ms. Maxwell's uh, lawyers, you know, they, they're doing their job, but their pleas are going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, look, there's, they're right that there's a political aspect to this. Um, and she effectively is who's left after Jeffrey Epstein was, you know, Epsteined. Um, so, yeah, she is kind of... Uh, who they've got. And also, you know, uh, she was found guilty of ruining the lives of of all these young girls. Um, You know, it's pretty horrible stuff. Um, You know, I I mean, obviously, what we're looking at is someone who's accustomed to a life of privilege, and uh, it's it's extreme privilege and wealth. And it it sounds like, uh, you know, like, like, like the whining that it is coming from her. Uh, you know, I, I don't really have any, I, I think no one has any sympathy for her, but it's certainly true also that, you know, the government hasn't exactly, uh, you know, covered themselves with glory in this whole issue. Uh, you know, they could have Mr. Epstein, uh, around himself if, uh, you know, at bare minimum, if you believe that the official narrative that, you know, they allowed him to kill himself, that's, the most charitable interpretation of events, which, frankly, I don't believe. And I think most people don't believe. Well, here's the thing, Ted. My position on this for a while was this. Um, The guy named Acosta, Alex Acosta or whatever in the Trump administration, when uh, Epstein got a sweetheart deal in Texas, I mean, in, in Florida, the guy said that when he asked about it, he was told, Epstein is intelligence, leave it alone. That leads me to believe that the outcome of this trial has been decided because Ghislaine Maxwell, because the Epstein uh, operation was an intelligence operation. It was an intelligence blackmail operation, and therefore all of this stuff is set in stone. Um, So I kind of I'm cynical, but I feel that way. Um, But let's move on to something very important. 
You wrote an article. I see it right there in the L.A. Progressive, and it says it's by Ted Rawl, and I don't know any other Ted Rawl, so I'm suspecting that you are the, you are the perpetrator. Democrats can win if Biden-Harris say they won't run, and you say the Democratic Party is in real trouble. I think you are being charitable. Ted Rawl, you, your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the argument, you know, every now and then, uh, you know, just for the record here, uh, for, for my progressive and leftist uh, listeners and readers, uh, I really don't care if the Democrats get uh, destroyed, but I, I'd like, you know, as a as a student of politics and history, I like to play the horse race game sometime. Uh, it, it's just interesting to me. And so this is that piece comes out of that. Uh, I, you know, I, I think the midterms are clearly a loss and Democrats shouldn't even think about keeping control of Congress this fall. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, unless Jesus Christ himself returns and endorses Joe Biden, that might not even be enough. Um, but there's going to but I mean, they they should have their eyes on 2024. And what they really need to do is have a powerful, strong uh, Democratic nominee. And the only way that's going to happen is if there's a really vigorous contest. And the only way that's going to happen is if Biden and Harris announce right after the midterms that they're not going to run again. Um, but that will open the field. The DNC has to promise to stay out of it, keep their thumb off the scale. And, um, and that will uh, allow the Democrats to have a, a process that would bring in a wide range of candidates, including familiar names that we already know, like Buttigieg, but also uh, some new people that we haven't even occurred, hasn't even occurred to us. That's, they should be focused on that. I also think that in the meantime, uh, Biden should... Uh, use his effective lame duck status now to sort of uh, prop up the, the progressive base, uh, do a lot of stuff that the, that the left will like, because after all, he's on the way out. And uh, whoever is the nominee can say, well, that was Joe Biden. That wasn't me. But still, the left will like it. So there should be a blanket pardon for nonviolent drug offenders, for example. Guantanamo should be closed. Assange and Snowden should be pardoned. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, student loan forgiveness, I think, would go a long way. Um, but this, the midterms are, are toast. There's no question there. You write, when voters are miserable and hopeless because they don't see government taking action that might alleviate their pain, they punish the incumbent party. So the trick for Democrats in the upcoming presidential presidential election would be to shed the albatross of the failed Biden presidency. There's only one way to do it. Both Biden and Harris should announce in early in 23 that they don't plan to run. Ted, I can't argue or debate that analysis at all. You are absolutely right. But two things. One, the Democratic Party has to realize that it has made a horrific mistake. And then two, the party has to be adult enough and strong enough to act. I don't see either of those coming to fruition. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think, and I guess that the question is, is it a mistake really? I mean, they don't always, as we've discussed on this program, the Democrats aren't always interested in winning. Sometimes they're more just interest in fu interested in fundraising. They're certainly not interested in improving the lot of ordinary voters any more than the Republicans are. Uh, you know, it's, it's basic. It's, uh, I agree. I don't think, look, the advice that I'm giving 
is falling on deaf ears. I'd like to point out also that about a week after uh, that piece was published, uh, I think it was Politico that that revealed a roll call that revealed that uh, there were some uh, there's some hesitancy within mainstream Democratic Party ranks uh, about you know getting behind another a second Biden candidacy. They didn't talk much about Harris, um, but let's face it. I mean, Harris's approval rating is, you know, literally, as I pointed out in the article, the same as for Big Pharma. Uh, you know, I mean, she's she's like less popular than like, you know, Toland. So, I mean, she can't run and or she can run, but she can't if she does, she can't clear the field. And I don't think she it would, she could be nominated. I'm 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 like racking my brain trying to think of when a sitting vice president ever ran for their party's nomination and uh, and then didn't get it. Uh, that's happened. But I think you have to go back to the 19th century. Well, the thing about it, let's look at 2016 and 2020 and the level of corruption that was used to stop um, Bernie Sanders. And, and in 2016, 2020, whatever year it was, when uh, Tulsi Gabbard was running, like the whole machine attacked her and called her an Assad puppet and all kinds of things like that, right? So the problem is this. This machine is so corrupt that if you're like a progressive or just a reasonable person, this machine, they have so many skeletons in their closet that they can't allow an honest person to be the nominee because that person might open the door and say, whoa, wait a minute, bio research labs? Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. They got too many skeletons in their closet. I don't – I think they're past the point where they can have – True redemption. democracy. Uh, right. They're past allow, the point of redemption. Yep. They, they cannot allow the people to choose because there's too many skeletons. What about that, Ted? Well, I think I think that's true. I also think that, um, you know, we have there's a, there's a long history of parties having to sort of be saved by them from themselves uh, by external forces. I mean, I think, for example, of the Republicans in 1900, when they elected the lackluster, uh, you know, William McKinley reelected. Um, and they, you know, he was he was assassinated, and they ended up with the very charismatic and very successful uh, reboot Republican Theodore Roosevelt, who helped. Uh, he was a crucial member of the progressive movement. Um, so you know, you can have events like that that take place, but certainly, if left to their own devices, uh, the DNC is just going to stay the course. And uh, you know, I mean, I think you're looking at a second Donald Trump presidency starting uh, in 2025. I don't think I'd be too off base to say the hearings, the the January 6th hearings that are ongoing right now, one of the motivations behind them is to ensure that there is no uh, repeat Trump presidency uh, in 2020. What year is it? Three? Four. Four. Thank you. But what does the RNC offer? Because the 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 prevailing uh, logic is now that they're going to take over in the midterms in 22 but they've got nothing on the table they're offering absolutely nothing as they have had nothing for the last i don't know 10 years so other than more of the same and voters have very short memories but right now the pain that people are being subjected to is long and it's deep so what do the republicans offer well, historically, Republicans have really not offered uh, any kind of solutions to the kinds of particularly economic problems 
that we're looking at now. I mean, you know, the last time we had this sort of inflation was under Jimmy Carter and conventional wisdom is that, you know, it was a major contributing factor to his defeat in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. But Ronald Reagan didn't cure inflation either. What happened was that the Fed drove the uh, raised interest rates and so far that they drove the economy into a recession. So it crash landed in 81, 82, 83, 84. Um, and, you know, so Reagan can say, well, I ended inflation. Sure. And you brought about high unemployment and high underemployment, the results of which, in some ways, the economy is still dealing with today. So, uh, you know, the, the message for Democrats should be that, honestly, you are better off in an economy with low unemployment and high inflation than you are with one with low inflation and high unemployment. Because if you earn nothing, then, you know, it's better to, it's better to have a, a paycheck that's shrinking in value than to have no paycheck at all. And um, but but they just haven't been able to convey that at all. They you know they haven't been able to shoot forward. Look, Republicans are not offering a valid uh, alternative here. And oddly, uh, voters kind of ex- don't really seem to expect it. They ran against Obamacare. They kept talking about Trump in particular. Talk kept talking about having a secret alternative for health care that it was going to be beautiful. <laughs> but they never presented one. Never. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see one because the truth is they don't want national health care. They don't have one. That's right. Yeah, I I would just say that I would say this. I think they're going to do what they're doing. Basically, kind of what Biden did. Vote for me because I'm not Trump. I think it's it's to a point where whichever party's not in the office, whichever party's in is so bad because they're both so bad. Whoever's not in is going to say vote for me because I'm not then them. And then they just reverse that every couple of years. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. And the the Vineyard of the Saker, opera, uh, Sitrat Operation Z, Messy Grind Again, and More Great Walk Back, They Write. And I love this, Jim Cavanaugh. They don't know how to get out. They have to get out. I think those two things sum it up. They have to save face for their domestic audience in the face of a spectacular loss of prestige. So again, Zelensky is being thrown under the bus and the Ukraine is an orphan. Jim Cavanaugh, what say you about the situation in Ukraine? Well, the, they, they, they don't know how to get out and they have to get out is a good line. But the problem is it really is that they're, they're marching every which way. I said like a Monty Python sketch where they're all trying to figure out which way to go. Uh, and uh, I'm just afraid of the situation because you see it, the contradictions in the same article, in the same paper, in the same journal. You know, okay, the Russians are winning, you know, uh, we can't defeat them. The minister of Ukraine says, defense minister, we've got all the weapons we need to defeat any army in Europe, but we can't defeat the Russians. Oh, but we've got to send them more weapons now. They're sending another billion dollars of weapons. 
NATO and the EU are saying we're in this forever. We're going to be in this forever. Wesley Clark gets up and says we have to. We, we're not going to. Def- Ukraine isn't going to defeat the uh, Russians. We have to. NATO has to intervene directly. So you have them acknowledging. On the one hand, there's a kind of ideological thing. Oh, Zelensky doesn't listen to us. Zelensky isn't the guy. So they're throwing him under the bus. But who else do they have? Who's going to replace him? It's going to be. Fascists were going to be more anti-Russian and going to be more reckless in using weapons against Russia. So they're in a real bind. And I just don't know what they're going to do because, you know, as it it, it is, Wesley Clark is saying, if we we lose this, this is a real – NATO might as well just just resolve, uh, dissolve. So it is a proxy war. They know it's a proxy war, and they're losing it. So my fear is there are are enough people, there will be enough people, there will be – only it takes a few people to go crazy and to say, yes, we're going to do something which is going to try and prevent us from losing and up the war and up the ante. And we're not out of this. You know, the two great political theorists uh, that I look to on this are Mike Tyson. Uh, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. And Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And this is not over. It's a, it's, a, it's a long way from over, and the United States would like to find – I mean, their shrewd idea is we'll, we'll get this go on forever. We'll let the racists take some territory. We won't ever let there be an official declaration of peace or a surrender by Ukraine, and we'll just continue this forever. And what are the Russians going to do about that? That's going to mean they're going to have to up the ante. It's extremely dangerous. I've asked this question a couple of times earlier today. This whole mindset that Russia must be defeated at all costs – Talk about talk about that mindset. Where has it come from? And particularly as we sit here now in 2020, because it it, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, it seems to be more projection by the United States in the West than anything else. You know, nobody was fighting until the United States started the fight. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I mean. Go back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, there was no argument. There was no fight with Russia. First of all, but the Americans thought they did. They thought they did, and they did to a large extent, control what happened in Russia. They put Russia on a path. And the Russian polity that's grown out of the dissolution of the Soviet Union is an oligarchic capitalist country. They think it can be part part of our game. They want to be part of the G8. They wanted, Putin wanted to be part of NATO. <laughs> but the American ruling class, you know, in its own mind was saying now that, we, now that we're the hype power, now that we do control everything, now that Russia can't do anything to stop us, we should we, – it's again, it's, it's, it's maintaining control of the, the resources of the world, the wealth, the source of wealth in the world, the Eurasian landmass. And they thought they could really control Russia forever and go in there and – Make it their, you know, usable property uh, forever, exploitable property forever, and politically break it up into smaller and smaller pieces so it would never be a threat to the United States. Now, Putin changed that. He started to change that in 2013, 14, with with 12, 13, 14 with, with Syria, and intervened militarily to stop the United States in Syria, didn't stop it, didn't reverse it entirely, but stopped it and stopped it from doing what it wanted, and which is overthrowing Assad for the moment. Uh, and now he's he 
he put the, the oligarchic capitalist Russian state under a certain kind of discipline and a patriotic nationalist discipline, built it up again, and said, we are not going to be treated as a child. We are going to take our place as a strong, powerful country in the world. The United States didn't want to have that. So they went on the NATO expansion drive. They went on, we're going to make sure that you see that we can threaten you and we can win and we're going to push you. So Russia reacted to that. But this is a creation of the United States over those past 20 years. And the, Russia is now not the country that it was in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the United States doesn't kind of understand that. And they chose to make Russia an enemy. Exactly right. They chose to make Russia an enemy. And Russia is now saying, okay, <laughs> we're not going to let you push us around anymore. And we're going to stand up and we're not going to be your child in the, your international rules-based order. We're going to be a full partner and we're not going to let ourselves be threatened by NATO and Ukraine. So the United States chose this path. And now they got a, they didn't expect that. They never expected. And they still don't really get it that the Russians are not putting up with this. So I don't know where that's going to go because the end of this war is going to be a retreat and something that everybody sees is a retreat either by Russia or by NATO in the United States. And who's going to accept that? Yeah, and Russia's not, and you don't retreat when you're winning. So, it, and not, Russia's not into retreating on their own border. They see this as an existential threat. They'll fight to the last man. Here's the other thing, if you could comment on this. And it's something we've been talking about a lot, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, in order to, this is a war of attrition and a proxy war that the U.S. empire is, 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 is uh, proceeding with. But you got to have some some strength at home and the economy is falling apart. People are infuriated over gas prices. And that this thing, I, you know, that we see, I'm sure the same thing when you talk to your friends, when you get gas, we're seeing this thing about gas prices and inflation spiral out of control at home. And when I mean spiral, uh, spiral out of control, I mean the anger of people and the political and social instability that's being created as a result of that, that the Biden administration has to manage at home and they're absolutely unable to manage it. How do they continue to prosecute any kind of proxy war or a, a, a war of economic attrition when this thing's absolutely the wheels are coming off the cart economically with these gas prices? Let, let me give you an analogy, if I could. Being from California and understanding fire season, this is the controlled burn that has now gotten out of control and is burning the whole state. Yeah. And I don't wish that upon my state. This is but this is this is the controlled burn that has now become a was it a conflagration and has gotten out of control. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well again, the United States is presuming its own power and Russia's weakness in an economic sense that isn't true anymore, and they're finding that out. So they set the fire of sanctions, and they thought we're going to burn Russia down, and uh-oh, you know, look who's got the scars, and look whose skin is, is boiling. So this is, again, it's extremely dangerous, because on the one hand, how can they go to war when they're generating this kind of discontent? And this is just not the United States. It's also the Euro European countries. On the other hand, that's kind of a classic way of, of this misdirecting and redirecting discontent is to start a war, <laughs> you know. So I, I, that's why I, uh, I'd like to think, oh, this kind of social and economic discontent that we're seeing is going to break uh, 
retard the United States from going to full-on war and certainly should uh, diminish the, the chances that the European countries will go to war, and maybe they'll break from the United States' uh, you know, theater of aggression here. But on the other hand, the ideological control of the media apparatus is such that they might think they can win, they can redirect that by starting a bigger war and making everybody... It's kind of crazy. And in the context of war, you know, this is something to say as a Marxist, you know, I understand war as something that capitalism needs now and then, because war is the, is, is the situation in which capitalism creates a kind of simulacrum of socialism. Suddenly they control things. Suddenly you have centralized control. You have maybe white wage price, price controls, rationing. You suddenly direct investment where it needs to go, etc. Plus, you destroy a whole bunch of productive forces that later on have to be rebuilt at great profit. So there's a, there's a sense in which there's a dynamic for war going on here that's just, it's very dangerous. There are a lot of things that are going on that uh, work against the war, but those same things in the right hands and with a, with a certain kind of spark can be turned into a, a reason for the, for the, for the conflagration. And what are your thoughts? He, uh, they, well, we, we got, uh, the, the, uh, what's interesting about this article also is they bring up China. They bring mm-hmm. up the, the that um, you know the um, the agreement the re- between China and Russia. Exactly. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, the Chinese are looking at this, and they they see what this is a proxy war between NATO and Russia. The winner of this is going to be is going to be pushed back. It's going to start a retreat that's going to be hard to stop. And they don't want it to be Russia because <laughs> they know if it's NATO, they're coming after them. So the Chinese are saying very clearly, we're getting ready and we're ready. We're getting ready. You know, we're on Russia's side in this and we're getting ready for anything that comes militarily because they don't know what's going to come. And it's very good. Just had this thing where the Chinese consider the Taiwan Strait, you know, territory of China, essentially. And the Americans go, no, no, Taiwan Strait is international waters. We're going to keep pushing our our, our, our Aircraft carries through there. It's extremely dangerous. So again, we are, people aren't. You know, I, I'm more worried about this than a lot of people are. Even that, you know, because I see the Russians winning in Ukraine, but it ain't over until it's over. And you can have actions that you know they give these harpoon anti-ship missiles to Ukraine. Somebody can knock down a Russian another Russian ship. That that creates a dynamic in Russia. We're going to do more. The whole thing can get out of control very quickly in a hundred ways. So. Uh, it's a it, it's a very dangerous situation. And China's looking at it, and they're saying, we know what's going on here, and we're preparing, and we want you to know that we are preparing for a military conflict wherever it comes. If we look at this from the other side, and we have about a minute and a half left, if the United States understands that it's gotten, that it has dug itself into a hole that it can now get, can't get out of, how does it find the honorable way out? If 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 the if the rhetoric up to this point has been Russia's got to lose, Russia's got to lose, Russia's got to lose, and now we see Russia's winning, Russia's winning on on just about all fronts. How do they get out? We, we've got forty five seconds. Yeah, well, that's these plans for Minsk three essentially, and they put forward, oh, we got to pre- we, we got to put something on the table that will prevent save Russia from humiliation. So we're going to put on Minsk three. Yes, 
this crazy plan that we're going to that that you sent me, Garland, from Dr. Rowe, who, you know, oh, we're going to have another Minsk three. We'll let Lugansk and the Nets have a referendum in ten years. You know, this time we really, really mean we'll enforce Minsk three. Pinky Square will enforce it. That's what they think they're going to do. That they're going to come back begging for a new Minsk type agreement that Russia will accept. Not going to happen. Well. Let's hope we can figure that out. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour on here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 